My name is Brian, one of the pastors, and uh, we are going to jump into uh, teaching scriptures right now. It's kind of what we do. We've been in a series that we started a few weeks ago called Renovation of the Heart. The big idea behind it is to look at various practices that Jesus, as well as his followers, engaged and did on base, repeated basis, rhythms of their life, that were part of the whole process of shaping them into the people that are like Jesus. Again, like we've said over the past few weeks, if not a month and a half, is that our real big aim is not just simply just look at these practices in order to do them. It's ultimately become like Jesus. However, these practices help us to become the type of people that are like Jesus. For example, praying, having rhythms of prayer in our life are part of the process of who Jesus uh, was and what he had done, what his disciples, followers of Jesus had done. So what we're saying, part of the process of becoming like Jesus is to adopt and to engage in certain practices that Jesus and his disciples had did. So today we're going to be looking at the subject of community. It's a big, massive, important topic in the Bible, um, and it takes a lot of work. It's not easy engaging in any variety of community, whether it be a marriage or roommates, or a church, or a small group. It takes a lot of hard work and intentionality to make it happen. But again, as we work and engage in that process, we become a type of person that looks like, acts like, lives like Jesus. And that's our big aim. So with that, if you guys don't have Bibles, why don't you all raise your hand. If you need a Bible, we have some ushers that would love to get you guys some Bibles. And uh, you can open up in three different passages today are the main passages that we're going to be looking at here today. So open up to these and then put your fingers there. And then I'm going to show you guys a little video. And then we will read the passage and we'll pray and we'll jump in. So that's a little bit of an outline. So number one, for, uh, book of John, chapter 13. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These are all New Testament John chapter 13, open that up, put your finger there. Uh, lastly, or secondly, I should say, First John, go to the end of the Bible, um, go to the book of Revelation and go backwards and come to the book of First John, uh, chapter 3, you can put a finger there, and then find the book of Hebrews. Again, I've said this before that if you don't know where these are at, it's totally fine, no shame, no guilt, whatever. Looking up the table of contents, it's nice and convenient and easy. So the book of Hebrews is where you want to go. Lastly, that's Hebrews chapter 10. And as you guys open up to those areas, have your finger in those spots, I'm going to show you a little video clip. And this is, uh, you guys, anybody familiar with John Christ? Yes, he's a comedian. He's really funny. So this video is basically satire. So it's not, it's not honest. You know, it's not real. So it's satire. So just FYI, just be aware of that. It's called Virtual Reality Church. Hopefully it'll make sense in the larger context of what we'll be looking at here. So here's a little video clip from John Chris called Virtual Reality Church. Here we go. Tired of having to wake up, get dressed, and drive across town just to attend your favorite service? Introducing Virtual Reality Church. Start by choosing a church building that meets your needs. Tired of the stress of having to choose a Sunday morning outfit? Never make a fashion mistake again because Virtual Reality Church will style you based on your denomination. Not a people person? Select the introvert experience to completely eliminate the welcome team, meet and greet time, connect cards, and that awkward hold hands with the person next to you thing we still do. Next, personalize your morning by choosing the worship experience that you want. Feeling a touch of white guilt? Add a minority worship leader. Custom options even let you tailor the skinniness of your worship leader's jeans. Finally, no more having to endure songs that you don't like. With Virtual Reality Church, you're in charge. For the sermon, choose the amount of conviction you like and we'll select a pastor for you. We'll even let you tailor your sermon topics so you'll never have to attend a Vision Sunday or a sermon series on giving. 
And never worry again about dozing off during the sermon. With Virtual Reality Church, you can sleep as long as you want. Kids being bad in nursery? Who cares? Worried about missing a football game? Enter your favorite team and we'll provide notifications when the game is starting. Never miss a kickoff again. Want to go forward for prayer? Well, if you selected a Pentecostal service, always stand in front of a mattress. Even connect your social media accounts and we'll post for you. Get credit for being super spiritual all from the comfort of your couch. Finally, an option for people asking the question, how can I make Sunday morning even more about me? Virtual Reality Church, the future of church attendance. Is that good? Does that not like literally stick its finger in where the culture's at right now? It's good. Okay. So anyways, like I said, it's satire. If you're offended, mellow out. It's a joke. So the point that I want to make is we are going to jump into Scripture right now. We're going to be reading a lot of passages in Scripture today. And I'm also unashamedly going to be quoting a lot from Dallas Willard as well. So hopefully that will make a whole lot of sense when we jump into this. So what I'm going to do right now is how about we all stand. We'll read these passages of Scripture. We'll pray. Then we'll jump in and get to work. Again, the subject matter today is on the practice of community. What does it look like for us to really engage as Jesus people in this thing we call community? So... With that, we'll begin by reading the book of John, chapter 13, or the passage right there, and then 1 John and then Hebrews. So John, chapter 13, verse 34 to 35 says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you are to love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Uh, 1 John, chapter 3, verse 16 says this, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And so we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. And finally, Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love into good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day is drawing near. And this is God's word. Let's pray. We'll jump in. God, we thank you for your holy, sacred, inspired Word, we ask you right now that you'd open our hearts and our minds and our thoughts, our imagination. God, help me to be able to communicate with clarity the things that are on your heart. Anything else, God, that is not on your heart, I pray that it would just fall by the wayside. It would be forgotten and just run its course. But Jesus, have your way in our hearts, in this place. Transform us, we ask. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Would you all grab a seat? I want to start with this uh, little quote. Uh, that I kind of put together that hopefully summarizes a little bit about where we're going to be heading. So the quote basically goes something like this, that the spiritual practice of community uh, and or service, the two are pretty much interchangeable, uh, reshapes our hearts from the pervasive cultural habits of hyper-individualism, isolationism, and consumerism. So again, the practice of community reshapes our hearts from the pervasive cultural habits of hyper-individualism, isolationism, and or consumerism. So the underlying assumption is this, is that unless we engage actively and intentionally in whatever biblical community is, we will by default, you might not even be aware of this, uh, any more than a fish knows it's wet, you will by default either continue in a pathway of hyper-individualism or isolation, meaning you just move yourself away from other people, or you will just maintain in a status of consumerism. Uh, and to go on a pathway of just being a consumer uh, requires you to become ultra-critical, 
which at some point, that's what uh, consumers do. We sample things until we're done with it or until it no longer meets our needs. We taste it, and then when it's not happening for us anymore, we move on to something else. So unfortunately, many, uh, again, just of us by way of wiring, based upon the cultural milieu which we live in, we will by nature be one of these things. What I'm suggesting, what I'm inviting us to consider, is that this practice that Jesus actually invites us into of community and our service towards one another uh, has a tendency to append these practices that are just part of culture at large and a part of our typical daily practices. Again, like I said, unless something comes in and thwarts them and replaces it with a better practice. So that's kind of where I want to head this morning. So what I want to do right now is I want to look at basically five things that this passage or these passages, three of which that we just read, basically speak to us. In other words, what do these passages that we just read teach us? So next slide, we'll jump right into this. That these verses teach us, number one, that love for one another is a command to be obeyed. First of all, loving one another is not optional, by the way. So it's not something that we can just cater and figure out like, love Jesus, I'm all into that. Going to heaven when I die, I'm all into that. Loving those that are annoying, mm-mm, not into that. Like, that's not optional for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have to look at this and think about what Jesus is suggesting or saying here. Again, in verse uh, 34 of John chapter 13, I'll reiterate it. A new commandment I give to you that you are to love one another. The language that Jesus uses is unambiguous. It's a commandment. It's not a suggestion. Jesus isn't saying, hey, when you feel like it, uh, when it's convenient for you, when it works in your favor, go ahead and love other people. Jesus is suggesting that this is an actual commandment. And again, to follow Jesus, this is another area where we got to consider to think about that there's a tendency to think that God adds commandments or multiplies these types of things to our lives in order to encumber us or to oppress or to enslave. The exact opposite is actually what's true. Jesus gives us commandments that lead to life. And when we abide by them, when we live according to them, we actually become set free. We get set free from the other areas that enslave us. You realize that self-centeredness is not just simply something that is part of humanity. It is an enslavement that many of us suffer under. And something needs to break us out of that. And what Jesus, I think, is saying is that when we love others, when we enter into partnership and covenantal relationship with him and say, I will abide and do what you've asked me to do. I will live according to your commandments. Jesus elsewhere said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. So there is this relationship between abiding, by, abiding in Jesus. Okay, I want to read the next slide. It's a quote from Dallas Willard. It's a great passage. He says this, that the idea that you can trust Christ, and again, I think he's speaking from a cultural perspective, and uh, without question, he's addressing a kind of a cultural Christian concept uh, that basically says, I trust Jesus. I'm going to go to heaven when I die, whatever that means. I got the ticket, the golden ticket. I said the, you know, magical words, so Jesus is Lord, right? I'm going to go to heaven when I die, kind of an idea. He actually says that that whole notion that says you can just confess or profess certain things and yet not live in covenantal relationship with the one that loves you and gave himself for you is actually uh, not only a misunderstanding, but ultimately a misuse of really what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Here's what he goes on to say. The idea that you can trust Christ and not intend to obey him is an illusion generated by the prevalence of an unbelieving, quote-unquote, Christian culture. In fact, you can no more trust Jesus and not intend to obey him than you could trust your doctor and or your auto mechanic and not intend to follow their advice. 
if you do not intend to follow their advice, you simply do not trust them. So imagine, you go to a doctor uh, for some sort of issues in your life uh, that can actually be taken care of, maybe saying you drink too much, you're eating too much, you're eating the wrong things, that if he says that if you stop this, you will actually put your body into a place where it will heal itself. And if in your mind you're like, I don't, not going to do that. At some point, the, the reason why that might be taking place is really is in the area of, I just don't necessarily believe that. Or you are so deeply committed to this other pathway, other way of life, that it is inconsistent to bring the two together. And this is what he's suggesting here, that this idea of trusting Jesus uh, also involves obeying Jesus. So again, going back to what I just said earlier before, that the first thing that we notice is that what Jesus invites us into is that love for one another is ultimately a command to be obeyed. Secondly, moving right along, is that these verses teach us that Jesus ultimately is our model for love. This is really important to consider, think about this. Now, if I were to ask you, define love, how would you define love? Many of us, we would have a variety of definitions, but I think one that might be somewhat consistent um, based upon how we culturally feed off of this notion of love is it has something to do with uh, you giving something or me feeling something towards you and as I feel this particular emotional, whatever, euphoria towards you, then I would say, I love you. And if I no longer feel that euphoria, we would say, I've fallen out of love, right? It's a pretty common way in which you see that oftentimes publicized in the media or movies and whatnot. But what I would suggest to you is that that idea or ideology of cultural definition of love is totally different than how the Bible describes love. It's really important to identify this. So, for example, if we bring our imported concepts of love into the Bible and into the reading of the Bible story, um, this is part of the reason why many of us, when we read the Bible, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us or it's confusing. So, for example, if we import that concept of love being this feeling that I have towards others into the context where Jesus says, love your enemies, then what we've just done is we basically reinterpret that concept that says, how in the world am I going to have warm, fuzzy feelings towards this person that was abusive towards me or that hurt me or that deeply offended me or caused great grief in my life? How can I have warm, fuzzy feelings? And that's the problem. Jesus never said have warm, fuzzy feelings. He said love. So this is where we go back and ask the bigger question. What does it actually mean to love somebody in the context and within the definition or framework that Jesus gives to actually love somebody? Again, this is where I would go back and say the Bible's constantly pointing to that Jesus defines or redefines our understanding of love. So if you're trying to figure out what does love actually mean in the concept of God, you've got to look at Jesus. So John chapter 13, verse 34 says, Just as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. Jesus sets himself up and says, I'm the example. If you want a template for what love looks like, just look at me. I'm the example. I'm the template. I'm the what you're to follow. And again, if you still have questions as to what does that look like, what form, what shape does that take, First John chapter 3, verse 16 says this, By this we know love. The word know that he uses there is uh, a word that use, is used to describe uh, an experiential knowledge. By this we know the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And so we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. So again, John is giving us, a, peeling back the layers and giving us a deeper understanding that love of God that God is calling us to 
It's a love that involves laying one's life down for someone else. And this is exactly what Jesus does for us. This is one of the reasons why John says, this is how we know, how we truly know what love looks like. It's God stepping into our world, into our brokenness, into our shame, into our destruction, our vandalism of this planet, in the ruin of our lives, in order the ruin of other lives through the actions that we've done. And God doing something for us, laying his life down for us. And then he goes on to say, therefore, thus, love others in the same manner. I think it's important at this point to just kind of consider that if you're having a hard time even understanding how could I lay my life down for somebody that's deeply hurt or wounded or injured or caused great trauma or grief in my life, how can I be expected to do that? What I would suggest, the most important thing for you to do is take a step back from that command and just re-emerge yourself in the act of what Jesus had done for you. Be reminded afresh, anew, uh, move in such a way where you can take a different glance or a different look at the love of God for you. Understand what Jesus has done for you. Let that thaw your heart out. Let that reshape and reorient your affections. And then once God begins to rewire your understanding of what love is because of what you've experienced from him, now you have a new framework whereby you can then go and begin to apply elsewhere. Again, it will take a lot of work. It will be challenging. It may be a lifelong adventure of practices that help you to become that type of person. But first and foremost, let the love of God rewire, reshape who you are and how you understand love in general. Uh, Thirdly, we see that these verses also teach us not only that love for one another is a command, not only does Jesus model love, but thirdly, that love is really the definitive signpost of us belonging to Jesus. So, for example, if you are a Christian, you have committed yourself to Jesus, you are a disciple of Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus, uh, what that means is that love actually becomes the definitive signpost, big neon sign, that you actually belong to Jesus. Again, I'm not making these words up, just listen to how John puts this. He says, by this, which is, in the context, love. Love for each other. By this love for each other, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples. If, again, just in case you missed it, if, or as, or because, you have love for one another. So let's take this passage, reverse engineer it, turn it inside out. What happens if you don't love other people? What happens if you, in the context of community, are nothing but hypercritical, isolated, uh, focused on yourself, uh, constantly picking everything apart and ruining other people's lives and causing overcriticalness or anything that just looks like Facebook rants. If you are doing that, is it possible that people will look at you and get a confused message as to who God is? Of course. We all have those people in our lives that we look at. We're just like, oh my gosh, I'm embarrassed to even be identified as a follower of Jesus because of what they are doing right now in terms of their rants on Facebook Twitter and all that, we pull away because we know there is an incongruity. There's something not quite lining up. And this is what John is saying is that love, the way that people lay their lives down for each other, becomes the definitive signpost that we actually belong to Jesus. Listen to how this kind of plays out in the next little slide quote going on here. Dallas Willard says, try to picture a church meeting or a discussion governed by this self-giving self-perpetuating love, where you and I love each other, uh, 
with Christ-like love, and together we would love the third person among us or with us, wouldn't everyone want to be a Christian? Wouldn't even wounded people flock to our church? Just think about that. This, this is a vision of what it could look like. If rather than us having a posture that oftentimes, again, by default, we are looking for others to serve us, but rather the posture shifted a little bit where we began to be shaped by the love of God, and that love began to shape us into a type of person that when we gather, as we gather, the way we gather, looks a little bit shifted, different, where it begins to be focused upon each other. Love begins to reshape. I, I love that image, this picture, this vision of how it could look. Um, fourthly, I want to take a look at the next thing that we think about this, is that love, or these verses teach us that love only happens ultimately in community. Now, again, this is a really important thing that just might be kind of like the big E on the I chart, but love cannot happen in isolation. So just on a very natural perspective, let's say, for example, there is a family member, let's call it a father, right? Dad is always gone, never around, never home. And when he is home, he's just absolutely tuned out. He's not emotionally connected on any way, shape, or form. If once a year that father says, but I love you, kids, at some point... But he's never home, and when he is home, he's just absent. At some point, those words become hollow. Just become hollow. Or in a marriage, in the context of a relationship, they just become hollow. They do not have any substance whatsoever. And I would suggest that love cannot be done in isolation. It has to be done in the context of community. Listen to how he goes on to say, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, or 10, verse 24. It says, let us consider how to serve one another to love in good works. So love, according to the writer of Hebrews, tells us, involves this process of conspiracy. Or use the word consider. Think about, if we were to think about, consider, conspire ways that we can actually provoke each other towards good works and love and kindness. Think about if, as we gather, there's an intentionality about our gathering, whether it be our small groups, our community groups, or gathering on a Sunday morning, or whatever types of gatherings we do, what would happen if we were to have an intentionality that says, let's figure out, let's conspire, let's consider ways in which we can stir each other up towards love and good works. Again, that's community plays an important part of this. Next slide, a little quote again. The book of Acts gives us this incredible snapshot into the early church. It's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament about the life and the sort of rhythms of the early church. Just listen to how the early church had these rhythms. Uh, one of the things that you'll discover in reading the book of Acts, especially, is that they met a lot. They, it wasn't just Sunday morning. It wasn't just throughout the week. They, they met a lot. They were just constantly in each other's lives. And I, I would suggest, again, this is what it looks like to be a disciple. It's not just once in a while. It's not just every, you know, once four or five weeks. There's something about the rhythms of our lives that are wired to hang out, to be a part of each other. And again, it's not just simply hanging out, playing games or whatever. It, there's something else that's involved. It involves Jesus as being the center part of this. This is what we see in the early church. So just listen to how this plays out. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 uh, says, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Skip on down to verse 42. It says, And when and then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, which is probably a reference to like the Lord's Supper and praying for one another. And then awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all were and all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Next slide. It goes on to say, and day by day, 
They were attending the temple together and breaking bread in each other's houses. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So just there's a lot of things that we can observe from this, but at least number one, again, like I said, they, they met frequently. Uh, the frequency, the rhythmic ways by which they came together was an important note of how the early church functioned. And I would even say not just functioned, but flourished. They gathered together. And their, the quality of the gathering, like I said, it wasn't just getting together and just doing random, non-churchy stuff, however you want to think of it that. It was, it was Jesus was the center of this. They prayed for each other. They broke uh, bread with each other. I mean, they ate meals. They shared the t- apostles' teaching, the scriptures, and they gave for each other. So when those were in need, they began to constantly figure out who has need, who needs a place to live, who needs to pay rent, who needs help this one. Let's figure out, let's conspire ways to creatively take care of the needs of every person in this community. This, again, this, it's important to know that this is not just like the leaders of the church. This is not just paid staffers. This was the whole community working together. Every one of us, guys, gals, we all have a role that God, if you are a follower of Jesus, what this means is that you are elevated to a level of importance. You matter in this community. We call this lowercase c church, which is situated among the uppercase c church along the central coast. God is doing something in this unique community we call Calvary Slow. And every one of you guys have an important place in this community. Next slide, as we go on, is uh, I want to read another Dallas Willard quote. It's amazing. He says, a spiritual formation good or bad, is always profoundly social. You cannot keep it to yourself. Anyone who says it's just between me and God has misunderstood both God as well as me. Jesus gave a sure mark of the outcome of spiritual formation, that we become people who love one another. That's the social element to this. Again, it is important to have times with just you and Jesus uh, that's not to be taken away from or detracted. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But there's also this deeply social element to it where we belong to a body, a community. In fact, many of the New Testament passages, for example, where it says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, I've heard many people kind of quote that, be like, my body's a temple of the Spirit. I'm just going to treat it as a temple, like eat well. That's, that's great. Good, good job. Do that. But the idea behind the you is actually plural. All right? We don't really have an English word for that unless you live in Texas, with, which is y'all. That's the idea there, you all. That's what Paul is saying, that you as a community are a temple. You as a community, you form this dwelling place for the presence, the love, the kindness, the generosity of God to not only come and to reshape you, but to empower you to become a blessing to all people. That's the big idea. So the concept here is we are part of this society, this new, new humanity, new community that Jesus is shaping. Next slide as we make our way through this. Is that, for, uh, fifthly, these verses also teach us that meeting together can actually be neglected. This is an important thing that the writer of Hebrews actually addresses. He says that in verse uh, 25 of chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, do not neglect the meeting together as is the habit of some So that word habit plays into this larger context where we can actually develop habits that we aren't regularly meeting together. We get out of uh, uh, the the, the rhythm of doing these types of things. We'll address some of that in just a moment here. But what I want to consider is something that's really important. That even early on in the early church, there were those that were drifting away. 
there were those that were moving away from this really important practice known by no other name other than meeting together. That many of us today, again, within a consumeristic mindset, we're like, meeting together, again, another meeting. Like, yes, that's, that's part of what we do. It's part of the practice. Um, Barna, uh, an important pollster, I think, in the modern-day Christianity, has done a lot of reports and tried to understand a little bit about what's happening in the church in America. And one of the things that Barna identified or discovered is that among uh, committed, and he actually does his research, that among committed Christians, people that would actually say, I'm deeply committed to my church, they actually would identify the amount of times they come to church per month is 1.2 times. So think about that. Uh, over an entire year period of time. That means you are going to church over 52 weeks, maybe 14 times. Now, again, no guilt, no shame. Just want to just reserve any thought or thinking about that. And let's move that entire concept into the context of working out. Let's say, for example, your big goal over the years, say, I want to get physically fit. I want to become healthy. I want to start eating better. I want to look better. I want to feel better. And so you make this decision at the beginning of the year to get a, you know, enrollment at a gym. And so you know that part of that gym involves, uh, you know, weekly or tri-weekly practices of going to the gym. You're going there to work out. You're doing your class. You're doing your workouts, your aerobics, whatever it is that you do. And let's just say, for example, someone were to ask you, okay, how committed are you to your gym? You're like, I'm really committed. How often do you go? I don't know, maybe once a month? The question is, how on target will you likely be to accomplish your physical fitness goals? Very unlikely. Yeah, wah, wah, wah. Very unlikely. <laughs> is it a problem with motivation? Maybe. But it actually may be a problem of practice. Maybe the real problem is not motivation. Maybe the real problem is not even information. Maybe you got the right information. You've been reading the right books. You've got the right info about importance of health. Maybe you even have motivation. You're like, I really want to do this. It's the most important thing in my life. But the problem is practice. Getting in the car, turning the key, driving. Again, it's something we, we do. It just doesn't happen on its own. We do it. But again, like I'm saying, if we as a community of people are saying we are equally, we are all committed to becoming like Jesus. And you look at the practice, and the practice is I'm constantly isolated. And when I am there, I'm constantly consuming and or critiquing uh, and disengaging. And the reality is, is that our pro progress of becoming Christ-like will be minimal because of these habits that we oftentimes pick up in terms of neglecting. Uh, take a look at the next slide. I'll read a couple things and we'll wrap this up. This guy named Ron Rollheiser, a uh, guy that I read over this past, uh, I think it was December. I read his book and a couple other books. But it's such an amazing quote. It's such... This impacting quote, I remember where I was actually driving right down by Santa Barbara College. In fact, um, when I read this, it was on an audiobook. I actually pulled over. I'm like, this is so amazing. I pulled off the side of the road. I started writing it down, bookmarking it in my audible book. It was so good. So just listen to what he says. Pentecost, it is important to note, happened to a group at a meeting. Not to an individual alone in the desert. That can be helpful to keep in mind. When we tire of meetings, despair of their effectiveness, or resent that they pull us away from important private endeavors, the fact that Pentecost happened at a meeting can also be helpful in keeping us focused on why we are going to all these meetings in the first place. Next slide. Meetings are, quote unquote, the upper room, the place where we wait for Pentecost. What are we waiting for? Why are we in the upper room at a meeting? Because we are waiting there with others for God to do something in us and through us 
that we can't do by ourselves, namely create community with each other and bring justice, love, and peace, and joy to our world. So good. So good. Imagine being in the first century. You're like, I'm really busy. I got a fishing trip. And then you come to find out, like, you missed Pentecost. (laughs) You missed Pentecost. Like, where were you? I was out fishing, bro. Like, dude, you missed the Holy Spirit came upon us, and we are empowered, and you're just nothing. Though we love you. But the point of the matter is, we still love you. We're invited in. But the point of the matter is, the idea is that it, these things happen in a context. The context is meetings, coming together. This is not to say we come together with expectations of fireworks every single week. Because if we do that, then maybe what we need to do is we need to wean ourselves off of the supernatural and begin to place greater emphasis upon the common. That God begins to show up and move in ways in our lives that oftentimes are just through hundreds of common practices. And then maybe within the midst of the rhythm of hundreds, maybe one out of every thousand, something supernatural happens and takes place. But if you weren't there, you missed it. Again, this is all part of, I think, just the process of thinking through this. Next slide. I want to just kind of wrap it up with some thoughts and we'll finish up. Um... We'll think about some hindrances here, and we'll go through these quickly. Number one, sin is this uh, hindrance. I'll kind of connect this with self-centeredness and pride because they all kind of go together. Did you know that? The center of sin. You guys ready for a cliche? The center of sin is I. Isn't that great? You can make a t-shirt out of that. Um, <laughs> but that's the idea. Like sin, uh, it puts you at the center of your life. It's focused on you. It's, again, self-centeredness. But these are hindrances to actually having headway and progress in a community, when that happens, those types of people are exhausting. You've been around those people. We've all been around those people. When everything centers around them, everything is focused on them, every story happens to circle back on, upon them. Again, we all have a variety of needs, but the point of the matter is, is when we become the sole source of everything needs to funnel back through me, at some point, that, that, that's kryptonite to a community. That usurps what God wants to do through community. Uh, thirdly, busyness. Again, we, we're all familiar with this. I think this is just a Central Coast, uh, you know, pandemic that we all kind of suffer under. We're so busy. Uh, that hurry and busyness oftentimes is a major disruption to our lives. Maybe for some of us, you've got to think about ways to slow down, ways to scale back, ways, what are things that maybe you are so encumbered by that it might be worthwhile for you just trimming those off your schedule because it's, it's crushing you. It's killing you. Um, fourthly, unforgiveness. Again, another form of dis- disruption to deep community. When we have all these degrees of offenses and hurt and pain, again, they're very real, but oftentimes these will become motivators for us to disengage. Uh, discord and or criticalness. Uh, Proverbs describes someone that sows discord among the brethren. He actually says that this is something that God actually hates. Think about that. I mean, you can be someone that says, I love Jesus. And did you hear everything that's wrong with Grace Church or Mountain Brook or the pastors, the leaders that I don't really like? You are actually working against the work of God. Like that, think about that. Sowing discord among the brothers. Like, ah, yikes. Don't be guilty of that. Again, if that, that means if there's offenses that need to be worked through, let, let's figure out a way to rally around you to help you to work through those offenses to bring about 
reconciliation. God, God is about reconciliation. He hates discord. So discord and criticalness. Uh, and then disenchantment. I like to think of it this, the path to spiritual divorce is the way I like to think about this. And there's this progress, this progressive path that many people sometimes take. I've watched them kind of go through this. I've been pastoring for a long time, and this is just a constant, ongoing thing I regularly see, not just with people in our church, but people sometimes migrating from other churches, coming to this church, or leaving this church and going to other churches. It's just this regular pattern, so here's how it works. It works beginning with enchantment, and somebody begins to have this like moment of like, this is a church is amazing, preaching's amazing, singing's amazing, children's ministry is incredible, and this, this degree of enchantment, it's like everything's amazing. And yet, at some point within that context, that could last for weeks, it could last for months, it could last for years. And somewhere at some point within that enchantment uh, comes unmet expectations. You know, the children's ministry wasn't doing enough, or the coffee wasn't hot enough, or the pastor is not good enough, or the music is too loud, or something changed, or something. Uh, again, uh, at some point, uh, there's an unmet expectation. I wasn't acknowledged. I wasn't placed in the leadership. I wasn't identified. Um, I was not able to go out and ride tandem bikes with a pastor. I'm a little bit upset by that, frustrating to me. And at some point, at some point, the disenchantment just begins to take its place. And that leads to disengagement, where, which is just stepping back. So here's, here's the community, the thing called the church. I'm just going to stand on the sidelines. I'll watch. I'll pull back. And then at some point, it's just a matter of time before divorce happens, which means uh, severing of the cord, finally, to move on. Now, I want to suggest there are definitely reasons why sometimes church, churches need to be detached from. There are toxic churches. It's, it's a real thing. There are toxic people, I should say, in churches that cause a cultural context that's unhealthy. Maybe there is a degree of just brokenness or abuse or things of that nature that could be happening. And at some point, again, even Jesus identifies in the book of Revelation, there are some churches that are just bad that Jesus says, I'm going to remove my lampstand from your midst. So there are definitely bad churches that disengagement and divorce perhaps at some point is really the inevitable pathway. But I, I find most of the time that's not the case. Most of the time, they're great churches. But somewhere along the line, there's unmet expectations. And that leads to the disenchantment. That leads to disengagement. That leads to the inevitable degree of divorce. So again, these are hindrances. Lastly, um, offenses or woundedness or hurt oftentimes can play into our hearts. So these are real things that can happen. And what I would suggest that anything that is above disenchantment and up, those are things for us to maybe consider and think about. Are they playing in any way, shape, or form our heart? And then from offenses and woundedness and hurt downward, maybe these are things that Jesus is saying, I want to heal you. I want to take your wounds. And I want to bring healing over that. And then finally, I just want to finish with some things that you and I can do. And I'll wrap it up. What are some things that you and I could do? Number one, um, I think, again, the tendency is to just disengage, to remain in a status of disengagement. And uh, what, I, what I've found over life, uh, again, I'm going on 28 years of marriage, I've actually discovered something about relationships, that when relationships get tough, um, the worst thing that you can do is actually disengage. Um, the worst thing that you can do is just be like, you know what, whatever, I'm going to go sleep on the couch for the next month until you figure this thing out. That's, that's really bad. That's a, if that's a habit that you pick up, maybe you inherited from your family, figure out a way to deal with that and to stop doing that because that actually creates even more compounded hurts and woundedness within your family. But what you really need to do at some point, you need to step back into the mix. 
and you step in. You step into the challenges and hardships. Is that not what Jesus did? Jesus steps into a hostile world that we created because of our sins and our offenses. And he takes upon himself the consequences of these things. So what we see is the love of God not eradicating the cosmos of this blue planet called Earth and creating something new, but actually stepping into this earth and into the guilt and the shame and the hurt and the pain, though himself always sinless, taking upon himself the brokenness, the sin, the defilement, and doing something about it. So I would suggest show up and be present. Do the opposite. Look, the cultural narrative says someone bums you out, angers you, bail. Why? Hyper-individualism. It's all about you. The video we just watched, it's all about you. Just if, as if you are not satisfied, just, just bail. And what I would suggest, an alternative narrative would be to do the exact opposite, to say, engage, show up, be present. One of the simplest things that you can do is just say, you know what, I'm going to make it a practice every week. I'm going to be at church. I'm going to figure out a way. If I'm going to be gone for a wedding, I'm going to figure out a way to try to be back Saturday night. Um, and again, obviously, there's, this is not to say don't ever, ever, ever miss church service, right? There's going to be times that it happens. But again, to make it a practice, to say this will be something. This is something I want my kids to see that we do. That it's part of our life. It's a part of our habits because this is who we are. We are people that Jesus has purchased to be part of his family. So show up, be present. Number two, serve others. I would put this in a larger context of, look, if, if your quote-unquote meetings have lost some degree of either urgency or excitedness, which, again, a very subjective and very self-centered barometer by which to define it. But I would just suggest, if, if, you, if we are using that as the barometer to define it, what I would suggest is maybe do meetings differently. So let me give you an example. If you go to the gym, and again, your big aim is to have muscle gains, and if at some point you're looking at yourself after six months, a year, whatever, of doing the same exercises three times a week, and you're not getting any form of muscle gain, um, the temptation might be like, I'm done. This whole gym thing does not work. It's a waste of my money. Maybe what really needs to be done is maybe you need a personal trainer that will actually help you to show you that maybe the way that you're actually doing the practice could be modified a little bit, tweaked a little bit, and you do it differently, and then you might actually begin to find those gains. Does that make sense? Yeah. I would suggest the same thing is true with church, gathering, meetings, that if for some reason you're finding your heart disengaged, frustrated, not in a place of just finding Jesus the way that you want to discover him or whatever, maybe do things differently. And this is where I would suggest maybe come serve others. There's always, 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 you guys hear me? always needs on a Sunday morning. And my suggestion is this, is that if you're already coming, just come and find a place within a rhythm and serve. If you're like, I got, a, I got kids, what should I do? Bring your kids into it. How cool would that be? Is if people that are greeting those at the door have their kids with them. Like, hey, this is my whole family. We're all just chilling, welcoming people that come into the church because we do this together. What type of model does that set for the kids? It's just an amazing model that there's a rhythm of engagement, of being together. I think that's probably how the early church functioned, too, by the way. So, serve others. Be present in community. Uh, thirdly, maybe come 10 minutes early. Maybe figure out a way to get here 10 minutes early to just begin to pray and to ask God. So, uh, by the way, uh, church actually does start at 8.30 and 10.30. Um, and, I, again, I, I don't know if it's a St. Louis thing or what, but there's a tendency, I think, where we just come really late 
And it's as and again, I realize for some of us, we have kids. It's just a miracle that you're even here. So I'm, again, no guilt or shame ever. I get it. But here's my, my point, is that if those are regular habits, for example, your kids are always getting to school late all the time. If your doctor's appointment, he's like, you've got to be here at this particular time. And you're like, you know, show up a half an hour late. And he's like, nope, you're going to have to see me in eight months from now. Like, it's life or death. You know, I'm going to die. That's so cool. But then just show up on time, right? It's a busy schedule. The point that I would make is we have ways and means by which we can show up on time for things that are important to us. So again, maybe this is a matter of like rethinking through, does this bear some degree of importance to me? Is it important to Jesus? Is it important to me? And is it something that I could actually benefit from and others can benefit from as well? So maybe come 10 minutes early. And then from that, prepare your heart. While you're sitting there, while you're waiting there, while you're helping out, ask God, God, meet me, show me who you are, prepare my heart. Do you realize that throughout church history, that Saturday night, I mean, I remember as a young Christian um, or as a young child, uh, I went to the Catholic church. And even within that Catholic church tradition, my parents used to be like, hey, no you know, TV on Saturday night because we're getting ready for church. We're preparing our hearts. And I had no idea what that meant, and it was not a follower of Jesus. But the point of the matter is those were habits that really didn't do much for me because my heart was not engaged in it. But the point that I would make is maybe that something that we can engage in in fresh new uh, ways that will change and transform our hearts. Uh, fourthly, or fifthly, whatever this comes out to, is pray for your pastor and the person teaching and or the worship leaders and or the others that are serving. Maybe if there's a degree of engagement that says, you know, I'm coming early. I'm going to be praying, prayerful, that the word that gets spoken uh, not only ministers to my heart, but also ministers to the hearts of many, many people that come into this church family. And I want to pray for the worship leaders that as they play music, that they will be able to lead skillfully all of us into God's presence. Um, last, the second and lastly is this idea of being mindful and or aware of others. So what if, as you came early, and you're maybe just sitting here praying, prayerfully, thinking, and you're aware, you're aware of other people. What, what if we became this community that when other people maybe came into the door and they're like, Look, looking like they might be lost because they're looking for a bathroom. It's very possible. It's the very first time ever coming to here. And what, what if, rather than us maybe sitting back and saying, well, when will somebody else get to them, we became that person. We became the answer to our own prayer. And we go out of our way. We're just like, hey, what's your name? Looks like maybe the first time you're here. Where are you from? What's, where do you live? What do you do for work? Uh, hey, if you're not sitting with anybody, you want to sit next to me? If we became this community, again, may, I'm just suggesting Maybe we need to do meetings differently. And maybe that might breathe some new life and transformation to our own experiences. And then finally, if all of this just feels overwhelming, probably the most important thing I would just suggest is this. Let Jesus serve you. I want you to imagine the night before Jesus was betrayed, he sits down with his disciples and he says, let me wash your feet. This is Jesus stooping down in an act of incredible humility, saying, I will transfer the soil from your feet onto my hands. In exchange, I will give you my, cleaning, my cleanness. So if all this feels overwhelming, or we feel hurt or wounded or broken, I want you to imagine Jesus stepping into your life and not just talking to you about love, but showing you love. Let him serve you. Let the love of God become something that so radically shapes and reshapes and reorients your heart so that then you begin to have this template of what love looks like. Because as we engage in this act, the spiritual practice of community and service reshapes our hearts from the pervasive 
cultural habits of hyper-individualism, isolationism, and consumerism. And the invitation for you is to, first of all, see the love of God and let that love of God so radically shape you into the type of person that says, I want to be where you're at. I'm going to be in the presence, in the company of your people. As broken, as dysfunctional, as sometimes problematic, maybe even embarrassing, and if anything, exhausting as they can be. All right? We have another word for that. It's just simply called... That's what I'm looking for. Oh, my gosh. My my mind went blank. Um, I guess I'm not supposed to say it. The point that I would make is this. (laughs) might be better for you. The point that I would make is this, is the invitation is to turn to this Jesus that wants to serve us by washing us and cleansing us. And I'm done. And the way we're going to transition right now is, again, sort of the practice of a new habit. And I'm going to have the worship team come on up. I've also invited Vicki Kruinski to come on up and share briefly as she kind of transitions and leads us into a moment of worship and response to God. And hopefully you have the mic. Yes, you do. Um, and as we just listen to what God has to say and how he wants us to respond. And uh, Vicki is one that I believe God's just given her unique abilities to hear God's voice, to recapture in some ways the things that God wants to reiterate and to speak fresh and new to us. And so just, just open your heart up to what God has to speak, and she'll pray over us as we transition into a time of worship and response. Sound good? You know, um, whenever God shows us something, or instructs us in some way, he always asks for a response from us. He's not interested in just giving us good information. He's after our hearts. So, this morning, he's inviting you to let him search your heart. Psalm 139 said, search me and know me. So just as Brian shared this morning about the different reasons sometimes why community is challenging for us, if you have to close your eyes, that's fine, but think for a moment. Give the Holy Spirit opportunity right now to search your heart. Maybe community's never been a problem for you. Maybe that's great. You're probably a unique individual. So what is it? Can you be honest with God this morning? You know, uh, friendship with the living God, he's the most, he's the safest and the most dangerous friend you'll ever have. You can't shock him or surprise him. He already knows. His invitation is that he wants us to know as well so that he can come and touch those places so what is it potentially that prevents you from joining into community is it sin are you hiding maybe you don't like Christians they can be kind of weird sometimes just not your cup of tea and takes some getting used to maybe are you busy busy? Something I have to ask myself all the time. What are my priorities? What am I giving my time and attention to? And are things that are important to the Lord being elbowed out because of that? I want my heart to be in alignment with heaven, and I I sense that most of you do as well. I want to love the things that God loves, 
and live my life like that? Have you been offended by someone in the church, pastor, leader? Has someone hurt you, abused you in some way? And if that's the case, I just want to say, as someone who's been in leadership in the church for probably close to 50 years, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I know that wasn't God's heart for you. And if you can, talking about obedience, the Lord asks us to forgive because, as Brian pointed out early, he paid so highly for our forgiveness, for my forgiveness. So God's challenging us, the one or ones that have offended you, can you forgive? Not because they deserve it, but because it's good for you and you can let them off the hook and leave them up to the Lord. It's up to the Lord to deal with that. And if you're not ready to forgive, are you willing to ask him to make you ready? Am I willing to ask, okay, Lord, I can't do it right now today. I don't, I'm not there, but will you bring me to that place? One of the most powerful prayers we can pray as believers is, yes, Lord. He just wants you to agree with him. Yes, Lord. That thing that you're trying to identify in my life. Yes, Lord. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and I want to pray a prayer. And if anything that I pray resonates with you, as I pray, just say in your heart, yes, Lord. I agree, I agree with that. I want that. Lord, I thank you for your word that it divides between soul and spirit and reveals what's there. Lord, I thank you Father for sending your son for the complete work of forgiveness for me on the cross. Lord, I want to be in the community that you've created for me. I thank you that you created us to live in community. I want my heart to be right where community is concerned. Lord, I want to love. I want to love uninhibited and freely just the way you love me. So, Father, if I'm too busy, would you write that in my life and help me, give me wisdom to sort that out? Lord, if my sin is causing me to hide because I'm too ashamed to be involved in community, I just come to the cross right now and I thank you for the forgiveness that's mine. Wash me. Lord, bring me in alignment with your perspective where community is concerned. Let me see your church, your bride, the way you, sees her, you see her. And Father, those that have offended me, where I've been wounded, would you bind my wounds as only you can? And where I need to forgive, Holy Spirit, would you give me the grace to forgive? I entrust my heart to you today. And I ask that you would continue to do your work 
in me and help me always to say yes to you. Lord, today I choose to say yes. Yes, Lord. In Jesus' name.